0: This is episode number 346 with Dr. Susan David. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal leaders from around the globe as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Self-love is something that I battled with for many years. It took me a long time, hitting rock bottom and ending up in hospital in 2010, to get to the place that I'm at now. It's been a journey. When I was in hospital, I realized that I had zero self-love and that needed to shift. Luckily, I was given a book that changed my life. You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. I devoured it in a day and something she said hit me like a ton of bricks. Choose you. In that moment, I realized all my life I had not been choosing myself. I was a people pleaser and put everyone else before me. And in that moment, I decided to make a wholehearted commitment to choose myself. That's when I enrolled in the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, also known as IIN. Now, I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, I didn't know what I was going to do with the training. All I knew is that it was a full body hell yes. If you sign up to IIM before the 24th of September, you will receive $2,000 off your tuition plus my business bundle valued at $1,141. How cool is that? So whether you wanna do this course for yourself so you can arm yourself with all the knowledge you need for you and your family to thrive, or whether you're a yoga teacher, personal trainer, or health writer, and you wanna add another tool to your toolkit, or whether you want an entirely new career as a certified holistic health coach, IIN is for you. All you have to do is email ambassadors at integrativenutrition.com and let them know you want the Melissa Ambrosini ambassador special offer. That's it. Dr. Susan David is one of the world's leading management thinkers and an award winning Harvard Medical School psychologist. Her number one Wall Street Journal best selling book, Emotional Agility, describes the psychological skills crucial to thriving in times of complexity and change. Her TED talk on the topic went viral with over 1 million views in the first week of release. She is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and guests on national radio and television. Named on the Thinkers 50 global list of the top management thinkers, she is a sought after keynote speaker and consultant with clients that include the World Economics Forum, EY, United Nations, Google, Microsoft, and many other national and multinational organizations. Her focus is on defining and executing effective strategies, especially in the areas of engagement, high-performance leadership, and cultural change. She is the CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology, on the faculty at Harvard Medical School, a co-founder of the Institute of Coaching, and on the scientific advisory boards of Thrive Global and Virgin Pulse. And she lives in Boston with her family. And in today's episode, we chat about her shocking experience with loss and why she became so passionate about researching emotions, what constant suppressing and neglecting of our emotions does to our mental and physical health, the true psychological price of faking positivity, where we were taught that happiness is the only valid emotion how we can train ourselves and our children to manage social media's unrealistic expectations of happiness in a healthy and loving way, how to let go and better embrace change to become more emotionally agile, powerful strategies to move through difficult emotions and the stories that we tell ourselves, how to become more flexible, stay present and consciously go with the flow, plus so much more. And for everything that Susan and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 346. But before we dive into today's conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it's a five-star review from Nikki396 titled, Everyone Should Listen. And Nikki says, I love listening to this podcast. It really lifts me up and makes me feel inspired. I've learned so much from Melissa and she puts her whole soul into every episode. Everyone should listen to this podcast. Nikki, thank you so much for your kind review. I'm so grateful. And as a thank you, I wanna send you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. All you have to do is send me a screenshot of your review to hello at melissaambrosini.com. And that goes for anyone who has left me a review. Just email me in your screenshot of your review and I'll send that over to you. And if you wanna get your hands on my Bursting With Love guided meditation, all you have to do is leave a review on Amazon for Mastering Your Mean or Open Wide or both and send me a screenshot. And now without further ado, let's bring on the amazing Dr. Susan David. Susan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: For breakfast this morning, I actually had a poached egg with... I did the avocado toast, I'm afraid to say. And whereabouts are you right now? So right now, I'm based in Boston, United States. But as I was saying before, I've got very strong ties globally. I was raised in South Africa, born in South Africa, But I also lived in New
0: Zealand and in Australia for many years. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, I'm so excited to have you here, but I want to start with where and what life events happened for you that led you to research emotions? Like, How did this all unfold for you? Where did it start? it's not exactly the, you know,
1: expected party line, you know, what do you do? I'm a student of emotions. But yeah, I grew up, as I mentioned, I grew up in South Africa, and I was a white child raised into apartheid South Africa. So I grew up in a white community. And, you know, in many ways, when you grow up in that kind of, basically oppressive society that essentially marginalizes and dehumanizes so many people. For me, from an early age, I started to become really firstly sad about what I was seeing and also started to question some of the narratives that we often have in society. And for me, as a white child growing up in a community that was committed to not seeing, to denial, I started to become aware of the role of emotions and how so often as human beings, we engage in denial, in not seeing, whether that's not seeing ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories, or not seeing other people. So that was my very early experience, but I first started to really come face to face with these ideas when at a 15 year old girl, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I recall my father dying on a Friday. And on the Monday, my mother, with, you know, really good intentions and in her own well of grief, she came to me and she said to me, you know, you should go to school because it's really important that we keep things structured and normal. And of course, she was raising three children and had just lost the love of her life. And I recall going to school on that Monday, and the Monday became a Wednesday, became a Friday, and the May turned into September, turned into November, and people would firstly very often just in my class and in my environment not really talk about or even actively avoid the fact that I had gone through a completely devastating, life-changing experience. So I noticed that with really good intentions, kids would come to school and they would not mention what they'd done with their fathers over the weekend because they were scared it was going to upset me. So there was this denial that I'd experienced as a younger girl, but now playing out in my own life. And I started to engage in this when people said to me, how are you doing? I would say, I'm okay. You know, I became the master of being okay. And it feels like we live in a world that at some level values being okay, relentless positivity, positive affirmations, get rid of toxic, negative people in your life, in the workplace, being positive and just being okay and getting on with it. And so I... Started to become very interested in how these narratives in society actually we might think that they were serving us, we might think that there's nothing wrong with being positive, and yet when we really look at the research and really look at our human experience, it can actually do the opposite, it can lead to denial. It can lead to a lack of integration, a lack of psychological health and well-being. And so began my journey. That's a long answer to a very short question, but that was really my journey. It was not in Melbourne University where I studied or at Harvard where I am now that I became most interested in these ideas. Those experiences in education were really a conduit of my earlier Questioning about these narratives and what it really means when we grow up in a world that tells us to
0: be positive. Oh my goodness. I'm just, when you were talking, I was reflecting back on all the times in my life where you're taught to just suppress and push things down and not even acknowledge it. And especially with grief, when someone passes on, it's like, you know, one or two days and then it's back to normal. And that just blows my mind. And I remember when my uncle passed away when I was about 15, it was the first time someone close to me had passed away. And my mom did the same thing. It was, you go back to school and even her, like she wouldn't show emotion. She would hide in the room and cry. It was almost like it was a sign of weakness. And I know so many women And men possibly too, but I'm just going to speak for the women because I am one. We feel like we have to be happy and grateful all the time. And there's so many people that are worse off than us. And this is not only not sustainable, but it's incredibly exhausting. So, why is it so important that we feel and embrace the full spectrum of emotions that we're exposed to? And what can happen if we keep suppressing and pushing things down? So these are such wonderful questions, and there's so many different
1: strands to this answer. The first is that if we think about it at a most basic level, our emotions evolved to help us to adapt. So when we are experiencing, whether it's grief, anxiety, loneliness, sadness, anger, these are actually normal human emotions. And one of the first people who actually spoke about this idea of adaptation through this full range of human experience was none other than Charles Darwin. You know, Charles Darwin describes how our emotions have evolved for two main reasons. The first is to communicate with others. When we are in fear, when we need support, or when someone else is threatening us, we know that we need to now run away or do something different. But the other way that our emotions have evolved is to help us to communicate with ourselves. And what this can mean is if you are a parent who feels guilty, that you might be saying, gee, I value presence and connectedness with my child, and I don't have enough of it. Or If you're in a work situation where you feel like you are just bored, you know, you're super busy, but you're bored because you're not growing anymore, that boredom can actually help you to ready yourself to do something different. Now, when we grow up in a culture that tells us that these emotions are bad emotions, what does it lead to? It leads to not being able to adapt or my terminology is this terminology around emotional agility, it leads to not being able to be agile. So I've come across countless situations where someone might say, you know, I'm bored in my job, but at least I've got a job. So many people would give anything to have my job. And so they just hunker down and get on with their job. And five years later, what have they done? They're still in the same job and they've lost those five years that they could have used to tweak, shape, and understand. So what actually happens when we suppress our difficult emotions is, and this is not even going to when we try to fake positivity, this is just when we suppress our difficult emotions, is that it actually stops us from being able to understand the signals that our emotions are sending to us, About how we might be living in a way that is actually in dissonance with who we want to be with our values. So that's on a, you know, more macro level. On a more day to day level, we know that when people push aside difficult emotions, when they say things like, I feel sad, but I shouldn't be sad. They start engaging in comparative suffering. You know, I'm sad, but I'm not as sad as someone else. Therefore, I don't have a valid reason to be sad, and I push it aside. What it actually does is there's this really interesting rebound effect that happens. We've all had that experience, and I talk about this in my TED Talk on emotional courage. If you push aside emotions, it's not like the emotions just go away usually what happens is they actually do the opposite. They become amplified. Psychologists call this emotional leakage. It's a little bit like you've got a delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator and you try not to think about it. And it doesn't work. You know, the more you try not to think about it, the more it takes outsize uh, proportion in terms of the way you're focusing on it. And so we know that this happens. We try to push these emotions aside but it doesn't work. And, you know, as I say, that's not even going to now trying to fake positivity, which we can explore if that's of interest. But the, the psychological cost of faking positivity is really interesting. And, and I think at a, a very fascinating level actually lowers our resilience as human beings.
0: Okay. So, but isn't there an element of faking it till you make it? If you experience sadness
1: and you are about to go into a job interview because, you know, and that job is important and you're sad because you've just had a fight with your partner or spouse, there is, of course, nothing wrong in the moment with doing that little bit of emotion suppression and going into the job interview with a smile on your face. What starts to happen, however, is... Not that in the moment, we start to engage in very often habitual responses to our difficult emotions. So, for instance, we may have been parented in a way that leads us to believe that sadness is bad, okay, or that anger is bad. Go to your room and come up when you've got a smile on your face. So what happens in this situation is the psychological messaging that you've got around that emotion is that, Sadness is bad or anger is bad. When I feel those emotions, I'm uncomfortable with them. So, what I do is I automatically push them away. Or, what I do is I don't have the skills to deal with those emotions effectively. And so, I actually can get stuck in those emotions. So, what I found in my research is of course, you know, the in the moment, I'm feeling stressed, but I'm going to just put on a brave face and go and do this particular thing that I need to do right now is not going to cost us. What is going to cost us is when we start defaulting to particular ways of being with our emotions, those defaults might be actually supported by narratives that we have in society about which emotions are supposedly good or bad. And this can actually lead to profound levels of Disintegration. And what do I mean here? As human beings, we have a full range of emotions. We are capacious and beautiful and wise. And we are able as human beings to experience a full range of emotions, not just one emotion or another. When we start having these rules about which emotion is supposedly a good or a bad emotion, We completely narrow our capacity. We don't develop the skills to deal with those difficult emotions. And we start engaging in what I've found in my work and what others have found is, on the one hand, what we call bottling emotions. Bottling emotions is when you push these emotions aside. You say they're bad, they're invalid, I don't have the right to feel them. Or brooding on emotions is where you get so stuck in the emotion that you aren't able to see your child, your partner, your loved one, your colleague, because you're so consumed by the emotion. And both bottling and brooding look so different, but both of them come from this inherent difficulty or lack of skill very often, or parenting or display rules that teach us that some emotions don't belong where did this all come from?
0: Like where did the idea that sadness or anger or anything other than happiness become wrong? Because I know for, I watched my parents, you know, sweep things under the carpet, sweep it under the carpet, sweep, like that's the schooling that I got. I also remember there was a boyfriend that I had in my twenties and I remember him saying to me, you're crazy, something's wrong with you. If I would get upset or if I felt emotional, just about, you know, even if I was on that time of the month or something like that, he would make me feel broken if I had any other emotion other than happiness and gratitude. And this really did eat away at me. It planted some seeds within me that I was broken and something was wrong with me. And then I realized that, you know, there are a full spectrum of emotions and we're allowed to feel them all. And it's all part of being human in this earth suit. And we're not here to suppress them. But where did this idea come from?
1: So, okay, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into this, but. Definitely there are some schools of thought that, that, that really posit this idea that, you know, if you think about what are the skills that feel most learnable and tractable and that can be written into a book, that often those skills were the math, the science, you know, the stuff that feels more tangible. And if you look historically at who got what education, we know that women were encouraged to sit home and sew and knit, and men were encouraged to engage in learning. And the kind of learning that was affirmed were these practical school book type pursuits. And so what you have very early on even in the way that our educational system is structured, is this narrative that somehow women are more emotional and men are less emotional. And that, by the way, is actually, you know, not true. Men feel the full range of emotional experience, as do women. But there was definitely a gender bias that you start seeing very early on in education. We've also found in studies that when people talk to their girl children, that they tend to be much more focused on, how did you feel today? You know, how did you feel? How did you feel when that person did that? What's going on with your feelings? There's much more of this focus on emotionality and feelings. We tend to talk to our boy children with more of a focus on task. What is it that you did today? You know, what did you achieve? And so we in our society and the way we converse with our children perpetuate some of these narratives. But then there's also, and I know this is going like way more into depth than probably you, you wanted, but there's also this really interesting thing that happens in psychology, In psychology, if you think about Freud, Freud is psychoanalysis. It's the stuff that's, you know, can't be measured. And there's a backlash then that happens against all these things that can't be measured. So in psychology, you start seeing this trend that happens in, you know, depending on country in the sixties and the early seventies of behaviorism. And behaviorism is basically if you can measure it, it exists. What can you measure? You can measure how many times a dog barks in response to being fed a particular treat. You can measure output, things like goals and performance and checklists. Emotions? Emotions fall into that category of It's more difficult to measure them. Therefore, they don't exist. They're unimportant. And so even in psychology, I did my PhD in Australia and I found that it was really difficult to find a supervisor who was willing to supervise me in the study of emotions because it was seen as being warm and fluffy and irrelevant. And yet we know that it doesn't matter what goal you've got, whether that goal is a health goal, Or another goal in your business or in your work life. We can set whatever goal we want. It's the emotions. It's the thoughts, the stories, how we experience ourselves, whether we feel stressed, whether we understand our needs. It's this, these, this internal world that actually drives everything. And that really, when I think about emotions, when I think about emotional agility, that is my life's work. It's about. How our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories actually underpin all of us, how we come to our careers, our relationships, how we love, how we live, how we parent, and how we lead.
0: Looking at social media, it's very easy to think that people are happy all the time and put them on a pedestal and That they don't experience any other emotion whatsoever. How can we train our children and teach our children? Because you spoke about, you know, it really does start with the children, you know, how we speak to our children. How can we train our children to not grow up and even ourselves not grow up with this ideal and this unrealistic expectation that? Everyone on social media is happy, therefore, I should only experience happiness. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, I would say that it begins in us.
1: You know, it begins in us. When you feel a strong emotion, the temptation might be to race for the emotional exit. You know, I don't want to think about it, I just want to be happy. And sometimes that emotional exit is a suppression of emotion. Sometimes it's an avoidance, it's, you know, getting stuck in shopping or Netflix, but both of those are ways of racing for the emotional exits. And again, this is born out of this idea that they're good and bad emotions. And so one of the first ways is to end the struggle with good and bad emotions by quite simply dropping the rope. And what do I mean by dropping the rope? if you experience this internal tug of war of, I shouldn't feel, I'm not allowed to feel, it's bad for me to feel, no, no. You are beautiful, capacious, big and bold and integrated and human enough to experience all of your emotions. There is no single emotion that is bad or that is Negative. Our emotions just are. And so if we drop the rope and let go of this judgy feeling that we often have inside of ourselves about whether we should or shouldn't feel something, that is extraordinarily powerful. You literally are dropping the rope. Another thing that we need to really be is compassionate because it is tough when you are showing up to the discomfort that maybe your job is not going anywhere or the business that you've invested your life into actually has very little chance of success or that your relationship is actually not effective or even that you are not showing up to your children effectively. Like those are tough emotions To show up to, and so, if we're saying we're opening ourselves and we're showing up to all of our difficult emotions, we need to accompany that gentle acceptance that we have of our difficult emotions with compassion, because you know what is compassion? Compassion is the recognition that it's it's being human. Is messy and it is difficult and it is tough, and that we are all shared in our imperfection. And so being kind to yourself is, is a really important part of that as well. But another critical part of that, and we, we can explore, you know, what that looks like in parenting. But another critical part of this is I often think of emotions as data, but not directives. What do I mean? They are data because what I'm really proposing is not just that we are like, oh, I feel angry. I'm going to open my heart up to the anger, but actually something far more powerful and far more profound. And this is that if you imagined a piece of paper and you wrote on that piece of paper, angry, sad, lonely, Anxious, bored. And then you turned the piece of paper over. And a lot of times people might think, now I'm going to ask that we write the positive, something positive. No, no. What I'm inviting people to do on the other side of the piece of paper is ask yourself, what value, what is it that is important to you that the emotion is signposting? Okay what is the function of the emotion what is the emotion trying to tell you So anger might be you know I feel rage when I watch the news and that rage might be a signpost that I value equity and fairness boredom might be signposting growth and learning and that I don't I don't have enough of it guilt as a parent, might be signposting that I value presence and connectedness, and I'm with my children right now, 24-7, but I'm not connecting with them in a way that is meaningful. Loneliness might be signposting that you value intimacy, and that even in your relationship, or, you know, we can be lonely in a crowd, and that that loneliness is signposting that you need greater levels of intimacy and connection than you have right now. And you can see that that is really powerful. You aren't saying, oh, I just need to deal with this difficult emotion. Actually, what you're saying is those emotions are data that signpost something that is truly important to me and that I can learn from And that's going to help me to shape my life in a way that is more meaningful and agile and adaptive and healthy.
0: There's so much growth when we just go digging, you know, and peel back the layers and look for those signposts. There's so much growth in that. And yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I love your TED Talk, by the way, your books and everything that you share. It's, It's so powerful. I want to talk about embracing change because I, I'm someone who loves order, who loves order in my home, who loves order in my business. I love things to go my way. So, And I know that I'm not alone in that. So how can we embrace change more and be more flexible in those moments? So I think, you know, what I've already pointed to that's
1: really important is this idea of emotions as data. A second thing that I would say is that sometimes when I talk about emotions as data, people say things like, well, you know, if I'm going through change, how does that, you, you know, sometimes I get I get stuck in the difficult emotion. So, you know, I'm going through change, but I've got this thought that says to me, You know, you you should put your hand up for the job, but the voice inside that causes you to shut down is the, I'm a fraud, or I'm not going to get it, or it's going to be difficult, it's going to be tough. And so what happens is, you know, when I reference this idea of emotions are data, not directives, what I'm really meaning here is that our emotions signpost what is important, but we want to be really careful not to believe our emotions and our thoughts as fact. So the first part of being emotionally agile is showing up to our difficult emotions. But a second part is relating to stepping out of those emotions. And really what I mean is that when you're going through change, whether that's change that's been imposed by the environment or by a workplace, or change that You know you need to go through, in order to grow and to be effective. That it's it's very important to recognize that we have so many thoughts every day, or emotions, and the emotions may be thoughts like "I'm not cut out for it." Emotions might be emotions of fear or anxiety, and then there are also the stories that we tell ourselves, and some of the stories. Were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five or six years old. And, you know, so one story that you have got is the story of someone who is ordered and organized. And I think that's a really powerful, that's really powerful and that helps you to be effective and it helps you to move forward. But sometimes the things that hold us back are the stories that say, you know, I'm not cut out for change. Or I'm not creative, or, you know, I've come this far in my career, but I'm not that kind of person. And so it's really important for us to notice our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories and recognize that they are thoughts, emotions, and stories. They are not fact. When we treat them as fact, we allow them to. Own us and own whether or not we move forward rather than us owning them. And so part of emotional agility, and if it's helpful, I can share some strategies that are helpful with this. But part of emotional agility is being able to step out of this idea that thoughts, emotions, and stories are fact because they are not. They are ways that we make sense of the world but they are not fact. And we are going to be more effective if we are able to step out of them effectively so we can step into things that are of value to us. You know, the value to you might be, I love order, but my focus on order is actually stopping me from experimenting or taking risk. And so if you can show up to that effectively and you can recognize that there's values that actually almost supersede that need for order and that are more powerful in your life, that's when you really move forward. You know, the value might be the value of learning. That it's not to say your order isn't important, but learning is more important. And holding onto that can be really powerful.
0: Oh, I love that. I love it. So can you take us through some practical strategies? Like if someone is in the moment and they realize that there is a story that they're telling themselves, like how can we practically move through that? Because often it's when we're in the middle of it, we feel like we're floundering and it might not be that we're on the other side with hindsight we go oh okay that's why i did that but when we're in the middle of it how can we move through it with as much grace as possible so one of the first things that i will say is that often you know when we think about emotions
1: people will say things like oh you know the emotion caught me off guard i realized that i shut down or i realized that i left the room when the conversation was difficult and it caught me off guard but Often, what we can do when we open ourselves up both compassionately and curiously is you start to notice, you know, patterns. So you start to notice the pattern, for instance, that you've got the opportunity for learning and growth, but, you know, not to overly extend the example, but that your to do list and your checklist and your need for order is something that you're focusing on every day and that's actually now moving you to your checklist and it feels really safe, but it's not moving you out into the world into things that are values connected for you. So the first thing that I would say is if we can adopt a greater level of compassion and curiosity with ourselves, we can actually start noticing patterns, ways of being on autopilot that we maybe had been unaware of previously, or maybe we hadn't noticed with a great level of acuity before. Another thing that I think is really helpful is often when we are stuck in a story or an emotion or a thought, I often think about, you know, it's very difficult to read the instructions when you inside the bottle. You know, when you inside the bottle, and you feeling fearful or you stressed, it's often very difficult to then be effective in that circumstance. And so a really helpful way when we're stuck is to notice our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories for what they are. They are thoughts, emotions, and stories. They are feelings, they are not fact. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. In Emotional Agility, I talk about this idea that we can often get hooked. And getting hooked is when you you have a fight with your spouse, you shut down, you automatically go to your desk and do those particular things first. You are stressed, so you bring your cell phone to the table. And these are things that are taking you away from living your life in a way that feels values concordant with you with yourself and you know often think of the language of Viktor Frankl or or the sentiment actually that Viktor Frankl expressed this idea that between stimulus and response there is a space and in that space is our power to choose and it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom so when we hooked there's no space between stimulus and response being undermined so I shut down. I'm stressed, and so I bring my phone to the table. Those examples. There's no space between stimulus and response. So, what we're trying to do to be effective emotionally and with our stories and with our values and, in fact, be agile in our lives and healthy is to develop skills that help us to step out of those emotions so that there is space between stimulus and response, so we can read the instructions on the bottle. So, what is a strategy? One strategy is that very often people will describe themselves by their emotion. So here's what I mean. I am angry. It sounds normal. But what are we doing? We are literally defining ourselves. I am. All of me, 100% of me is angry. You know, I am guilty. I am stressed. (laughs) I'm stressed, okay? (laughs) I am busy. I'm busy. So what you're doing is you can see that just by the language that we are using here, there is no space for anything else, for wisdom, for compassion, intentionality, breathing, centeredness. You know, we are more than that one emotion You know, we much more than that one experience that we're having. So one very simple strategy, and it sounds like a linguistic hack, and it is, it is, but it's extraordinarily powerful, is I am sad. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry. I'm noticing that this is my, you know, I'm not cut out for this story. I'm noticing that this is my I'm not good enough thought. What you're doing here is you're simply just noticing, you're not pushing them aside, you're noticing your thoughts, your emotions, and your stories, for what they are, thoughts, emotions, stories, feelings, not fact. When you do this, you're starting to own them rather than them owning you. So that's one strategy. I've got many others, if that would be helpful. But, you know, let me know if that, if that feels like it resonates.
0: Oh, I love this so much because I used to say, I am sad, I am busy, I am stressed. Then I worked with a therapist and he taught me to change the language to, there's a little part of me that is sad. But I like this even more because it is, I'm noticing there's sadness or I'm noticing there's anger or I'm noticing there's loneliness. I like that so much more than even there's a little part of me that is sad or because that still makes it feel like it's part of me, it's in me where the noticing is the observer and it feels more empowering. And like, I can do something about it as opposed to, oh, it's in me. It's part of me. It feels harder for me to work through. You know what I mean? So It's interesting because what you're doing in the circumstance is
1: you're starting to take an observer view. You're starting to take a meta view. And perspective taking is one of the most powerful ways we can be in the world. When we empathize with others, what are we doing? We are taking a different perspective. We're moving out of our own pain into someone else's. When we perspective take, it gives us the breathing room to do things differently. And so I am noticing, you can see what you're starting to do. You're not denying, but you are almost like helicoptering above your experience. And it's so fascinating when I trained as a psychologist And, you know, when I've worked in organizations and with individuals, it's really interesting when people are feeling stuck, you can sometimes say to the person, what do you think you should be doing in this situation? And the person says, I've got no idea. That's why I'm paying you. You know, like, that's why I'm speaking to you. I've got no idea. And that the situation could be a tough job situation or a relation, it could be any situation. Okay. So the person says, I've got no idea. I'm completely stuck. I've got nothing. I've got no solutions. I've got no suggestions. You then say to the person, let's just for a moment, invite someone in an imaginary way into this conversation. Let's invite into the conversation, someone who you know is wise, who loves you, who has your best interests at heart, and who, you know, really exudes a sense of both wisdom and caring, what do you think that person would suggest you do in the situation? And it's absolutely fascinating because it's the same person, it's the same situation, but now because they are perspective-taking, they're inviting a different view into the conversation. They're like, oh, they would tell me to do this. They would tell me to have a difficult conversation. They would tell me to, you know, a hundred suggestions. But what have you done? You've just engaged in perspective taking and we can do that for ourselves.
0: Mm, I love that. That is such great advice. And I know so many people listening will be taking nuggets from this and implementing it into their life. I truly hope. Something else that I'm really working on is going with the flow more. One of my mentors once said to me, the key to longevity is infinite flexibility, or you say agility. So how can we be more flexible and agile and go with the flow more and be more in the moment? So what's really interesting
1: is if I speak about values, Values often seem the opposite of going with the flow. You know, values often feel like they are, you know, about about being grounded as opposed to being fluid. But what I'm going to suggest actually is that there are different ways that we can go with the flow. The one way of going with the flow is when we actually are just getting kind of sucked into the flow. So we are getting sucked into just saying yes to things, even though it's not really how we want to be spending our time, uh, surfing the internet for hours. You know, there's different ways that we can go with the flow in, in a way that actually takes our power and takes us away from being thoughtful with how we spend our days and our time and our precious moments on this earth. And then there's a going with the flow that is, instead of being hooked by a story that says, I'm not good enough. And so you almost like living in that story when you were five years old, rather than going with a beautiful opportunity that's in front of you. And so it's like that five-year-old you is, is holding you back. And actually what you need to be doing is going with the moment you know what am i thinking when i think about going with the flow in a healthy way for me what that is it's it's about firstly knowing who you are knowing what's important to you when you know what you care about when you have taken some time to think about you know what are your values what what's important to you i, I can give you an example you know for me community is really important And autonomy is really important. So what does that mean? It means when I'm in a situation where I'm invited to be on a project where I don't have autonomy and choice, that those are projects that I know based on my values are not well suited to me. And so it allows me then to actually be free because knowing who you are and what you stand for allows you to both say yes, And to say no in a way that's really attentive to the present situation that's in front of you, rather than a past that's dragging you or uh, other people who are suggesting that you do things. So I think of going with the flow in a healthy way as firstly, asking yourself, what is meaningful to you? What, What are the values that you hold to? Because then you almost like a gymnast, you stepping onto the mat. You've got that inner core knowing what's important to you, and it actually protects you from social contagion, self comparison, and and going through you know in the, into the flow in unhealthy ways. The other thing that I would suggest in this context is that often we think about you'd spoken about change earlier, and we think about change as being. We've just got to, you know, in order to make big change, we've just got to sell up and go live on a wine farm, or we've got to make radical changes to our lives. And I think that that is actually in a general sense, not true or not helpful for us as humans. I, you know, when you look at the research, yes, there may be people who can just give up everything and throw in The security of a paycheck in order to do something different. But actually, when we look at powerful and lasting change for us as human beings, we know that that change is actually very often made in the tiny tweaks. It's the small changes. If you think about a sailboat and you steer that sailboat two degrees, two degrees, two degrees, You land up in a very different area of the bay or a very different part of the ocean. So a two degree change, actually what I call a tiny tweak is very powerful. And so I think that part of going with the flow is not simply about saying, Oh, you know, I'm open for anything. It's actually about saying, you know, who do I want to be in the situation? What is important and what are small tweaks that I can make here that help me to go with the flow in a way that's effective? What are small opportunities that I can say yes to? What are ways that I can connect with people that I might not have connected with before? I think those are ways that we can go with the flow, but in a way that is meaningful and, and values connected.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's often those little things, those little shifts that we make that really have such a big impact. And in my second book, it's called Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships and Soulful Sex. And chapter four in that book is all about understanding your core values. Because in the context of the book, I talk about when you know your core values, you can then call in a life partner who is aligned on those same values. And in the context of, what we were just talking about, when you know your core values, you're able to stay on your path. You're know, you able to stay in your lane and not be looking left and right and seeing what everyone else is doing. And you can go with the flow more because you know what is important to you, what is of value to you. So I love that you brought that up. It's almost
1: like knowing your values liberates you to go with the right flow or with the with the with the you know to not extend the metaphor too much, but it's like, you know, the river that is the river that's most connected with who you want to be, rather than going with the flow in a way that you constantly comparing, and you wake up in twenty years' time and you go, oh my goodness, you know, I'm living this life and I'm driving this car and I'm in this house, but it's it's not what I want. It's not what I choose. Mm.
0: Exactly. Exactly. This has been so amazing so far. I would love to hear now, if you had one book that you could put in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, besides your books, let's pretend they're already in there. What is one book you would choose?
1: Oh my goodness. Now, Well, I mean, there are a gazillion books that I would choose, but I think that I probably would choose. And of course, this is probably not it would depend on the age level but i think victor frankl's man's search for meaning you know victor frankl survived the nazi death camps and and he he i think his messaging is so powerful which is this idea that you know there is such power in us as individuals and it's not a power that comes through denial or what I call the tyranny of positivity, this idea that we've just got to be positive. It's actually a power that comes through compassion, through curiosity, through knowing who we are, and through courage. And those, I think, are core components that I talk about in Emotional Agility and that that Viktor Frankl in
0: Man's Search for Meaning really just embodies. It is such a good book and we'll link to it as well as your book in the show notes both of those books are essential reading so make sure you go and check them out i would love to hear now you know how do you show up as the best version of yourself each day do you have a morning routine do you meditate what are your rituals your little things that you do throughout the day to really help you show up as the best you and stay in alignment with your core values
1: well One of the things, you know, is this tiny tweaks piece. You know, when I think about me and my relationships, it's not, of course, to say I never get angry or I never get, you you know, of course, of course I do. We all do. What I am mindful of is how we can often get habitually into spaces that don't reflect who we want to be. So I'll give you an example, which is, You know, what do I value? I value my relationship with my husband. And I noticed that I went through a stage where he would come home from work. He would say hello to me and I would be doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm busy and I'm on my phone and I'm. And so for me, like a really tiny tweak was simply this idea that every time when my husband came home from work or when I came home from work that I was going to put down whatever I was doing and was going to engage in seeing him. You know, there's this beautiful word in South Africa where I grew up. There's this beautiful word, sowobona. And sowobona, you hear it every day on the streets. And sowobona literally translated means, I see you and by seeing you, I bring you into being. And there is such power for another person, a child, a colleague, to feel seen. You know, they might know they loved, but to feel seen is something different. And so for me, I think it's 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 these kinds of things. The first is, what are some small changes that I'm always looking for that I can make that allow me to be more values concordant because I value my relationship. And if I value my relationship, what does this tiny tweak mean? It means that I'm going to put my cell phone down. I'm not going to bring it to the table at dinner. These are tiny tweaks. Another thing that I remind myself of is a concept that I've been thinking of a lot lately, which is the idea of bothness. And what do I mean by bothness? I described in, I did a podcast series with Ted called Checking In. And in this, I described this idea that, you know, you can simultaneously be fearful of a change, upset with a spouse, you know, worried about something, and you can choose to act in a way that is different to what your emotions are telling you. Okay. So my emotion might be saying to me, I'm being undermined in the meeting and I should just shut down. But if I value contribution and if I value being a contributor, I might be feeling undermined, noticing that as I'm noticing that I'm feeling undermined and still choose to contribute. This idea of bothness, I think, is powerful. And it's something that I am looking for and trying to be. Mm,
0: I love that. I love that. I'm going to try that as well. So, thank you for sharing that little tip. I'm definitely going to try that. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Go for it. What's one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: Label your emotions accurately instead of saying, I am stressed, recognize that there is a difference between stress versus disappointment, versus, I'm in the wrong job. When we label our emotions accurately, when we say, not what is the umbrella emotion, but what are two other emotions that I might be experiencing, what it does is it allows us to understand the cause of the emotion and what it is that we need to be doing. Why do I connect that with being important for health? Because no matter what change you're trying to make in your life, if you say something like, you know, I'm stressed, but actually the emotion that's underneath it is I'm exhausted. We can't do anything with stress, but exhaustion, we know that when we label our emotions more accurately, it starts to help us to say, oh, what do I need to do? What do I need to put in place to take better care of myself in this situation? When we label our emotion as stress, but actually the emotion that's underneath that is, I feel unsupported. What it allows us to do is to start saying, what do I need to do? to get greater levels of support. And this is really, you know, this is what in psychology we call emotion granularity or emotion differentiation. Often what we do is we go to this umbrella label, but we know that when it comes to health, to relationships, workplace, it doesn't matter what the realm is in our lives, when we label our emotions more accurately and by extension, when we help our children to label their emotions more accurately, it actually helps us to understand what it is we need to do to put in place
0: to help us to navigate that situation effectively. And using the terminology, I'm noticing stress or I'm noticing exhaustion, that has been really big for me so far in this conversation. So thank you for sharing that. Okay, the next one, what is one thing that we can do, one of the most important things that we can do for our wealth, so to have more abundance in all areas of our life? To have more abundance in all areas
1: of our life, I think we need to let go of this idea that, that success is equated at some level with material wealth when we look at well-being and happiness and meaning throughout the course of life, we know that people who are doing better and who are, you know, in a broad term wealth, wealthy, they are people who are living their life in accordance with their values, what is important to them. And so I think for all of us, You know, me included, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this, like, who do I want to be? What is important to me? And how can I make small changes, choice points that bring me closer to that? You know, that, that is profoundly important because you can be the wealthiest person on earth from a monetary perspective and the most unhappy person. So, you know, I think it's very much about this idea of thinking, who do I want to be? What are my goals? What are my values? And moving,
0: even if it's uncomfortable, in the direction of those values. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the last one, what is one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? I think think
1: that I would come back to this idea of seeing, seeing the other, seeing the other. I think this idea of Sawabona is so powerful. And here's the paradox, which is that we can't really see other people if we can't see ourselves. It's very difficult to love another person if we can't love ourselves. You know, internal pain always comes out. It might come out in an argument. It might come out over the dinner table, or it might come out in shrinking our lives and then shrinking our relationships. So I think, you know, the more we can generate greater levels of kindness to the self, curiosity, you know, why am I feeling this? Why am I thinking this? And courage, because, you know, sometimes we need to move in ways that are courageous and and that feel uncomfortable to us, I think the more we can do that for ourselves, the more we sowabona ourselves, the more we are able to actually show up to other people.
0: Mm, I love that. Sowabona. Am I saying it correctly? Sowabona. I love that. This has been so powerful and beautiful, Susan. I'm so grateful. Is there anything else that you want to share, any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to ask you about right now?
1: I think for me, one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is, of course, the times we are in right now, you know, they're challenging and it can be very easy in challenging times to you know, feel like we just have no power and basically for the narrative of the times to colour everything. And so I think, you know, if I was gonna leave people with maybe a question, it 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 would be this. And and maybe if we've got a little bit of time, I'll I'll talk about how I get to this, which is many years before my father died. So my father died when I was 15 and when I was five years old, before any of us knew that my father was going to die at, at that you know, early age, I remember I became very aware of the idea of death, that at around the age of five, children become aware of their own mortality, that they're not going to be around forever and their parents aren't going to be around forever. And I would say goodnight to my parents. And then I would find my way into their bed. And I would say to my father, you know, promise me, promise me you'll never die. Promise me you'll never die. And my father could have done a fake positive to me. He could have said to me, oh, don't worry, I'm okay, I'm healthy. He was, I'm gonna be around. But he didn't. You know, what he said to me is, Susie, it's normal to be scared. We all die. It's normal to be scared, and what I understood in the way that he was comforting me through those nights is he was saying to me, "You know, courage is not the absence of fear." And I think, especially in the challenging times that we in, courage is not the absence of fear or sadness or loneliness. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. Courage is about saying, "These are the emotions that I'm experiencing." i'm going to notice them with compassion and with curiosity and i am still going to move in the direction of what is meaningful in my life and so the parting question that i would ask is this you know if we think about courage as fear walking it's it's this you know even in the midst of this challenge in the midst of the complexity and the chaos who do i choose to be? Who do I choose to be? And I think if we can start asking ourselves that simple but really important question, we start elevating the parts of ourselves that are wise and the parts of ourselves that are agile and values connected. And I think that that uh, can be very meaningful to us in the context that we are all
0: in right now. Beautiful. Thank you for that share. That was beautiful. This has been so powerful. I have loved hearing your words of wisdom. I will link to everything in the show notes. You have helped so many people with your TED Talk, which had around 7 million downloads, which I loved, by the way. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Your books, everything that you do, you serve so many people, you help so many people. So I want to know what I and the listeners can do to serve you. How can we give back to you today? I, the only thing I would say is love, you know, love,
1: love. It's so easy to be in judgment with ourselves. It's so easy to be in judgment with others and love, you know, that's it. Because love, love ultimately is everything.
0: Yes, absolutely. Beautiful note to end on. Susan, thank you so much for being here, for all of your wisdom and for sharing with us so openly. And honestly, today, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I love being
1: here. Thank you.
0: Wasn't that awesome? She is just a wealth of knowledge. I got so much out of today's episode. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. Don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you get from each episode. So please come and share them with me. And for everything that Susan and I mention in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at MelissaAmbrosini.com forward slash three, four, six. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them. Do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.